Welcome to Process This, a podcast for the sterile processing community. Isham invites you to log on, listen, and learn twice a month. Now it's time to process this with your host, clinical educator, John Wood. Welcome, Isham Nation, to the Process This podcast. This is episode number 32. Today we're going to spend our time speaking with the Editor-in-Chief of the AORN Guidelines, Aaron Kyle. Aaron has agreed to talk to us about the relatively new AORN Guideline, Care and Cleaning of Surgical Instruments. This guideline was released in late 2020 and it has lots of important updates, so stick around and let's see what's new. Erin, thank you for joining the Isham Nation on the podcast today. Thank you for having me, John. Sterile processing professionals listening to this podcast are probably more familiar with the AMI standards rather than the AORN guidelines. So can you explain the differences between the AORN guidelines for perioperative practice and the AMI standards? This is a great question and one that we are asked often. So both AMI standards and AORN guidelines are intended to guide best practices. The difference really is in how the documents are developed. AMI standards are written and updated by groups of experts by following a standardized process. And these experts that participate in standards development come from different perspectives with some representing industry, like the people who design, validate, and sell sterilization equipment and surgical instruments, and others represent users like you and me. So what is interesting about the group of experts that writes AMI standards is that there are far more industry representatives than users that are represented in the expert teams who write those standards. We do our best to align the recommendations in the AORN guidelines and the AMI standards uh, because we know that users reference both of those documents to guide their practice. And to try to do this, we have AORN liaisons to AMI who do participate in standards development. So on the other hand, AORN guidelines are developed much differently than AMI standards. We currently have 34 guidelines that provide guidance for perioperative teams on a range of topics, including those of interest for your listeners, such as the guideline for sterilization, sterilization packaging systems, care and cleaning of surgical instruments, high-level disinfection, and flexible endoscope processing. And at AORN, we have a team of experienced perioperative nurses that author new guidelines and revised guidelines by following a process that begins with a thorough search of the recent relevant scientific literature. And this is what makes AORN guidelines evidence-based, and that's an important distinction from AMI standards. It's important to note uh, for all our listeners that Erin and other colleagues of hers, they participate in the AMI standards which is kind of in collaboration with what we do at sterile and sterile processing. So thank you for your interest in sterile processing and uh, being available to be on those committees. It's my pleasure. So I've heard that the process that really goes into creating or revising an AORN guideline is rather lengthy. 
Can you explain the process to our listeners? I would love to. (laughs) As I mentioned previously, the guideline begins with a thorough search of the recent and relevant scientific literature. What that means is that the guideline author and our clinical research librarian, who is also a perioperative nurse, and I meet to discuss the details of the search, including relevant keywords, the time frame for the search, and other resources that we may need. Once that search strategy is set, the librarian conducts the search and provides a lengthy list of citations for the author to review. And this list of citations is often in the thousands, and the author then has to comb through each of these to decide whether each one meets inclusion criteria for that guideline. In other words, the librarian casts a very wide net to be sure that all of the relevant research is captured, and then the author evaluates each and throws back the ones that are not relevant to the guideline. After that, the full text of each of the accepted articles are retrieved, and then the author goes to work carefully reading them. And while the author is reading the research articles, The author also assigns each an evidence rating score, which is based on the type of evidence. For example, is it research or not? What kind of research is it? And also the quality of the study. This evidence rating score is assigned based on predetermined criteria that are published as evidence rating tools on our website. And in addition to the author evaluating the literature and assigning these evidence rating scores, An independent, doctorally prepared nurse reviewer also evaluates the literature and assigns a score. And what happens next is that a consensus score is determined by the author and the independent reviewer reconciling their independent reviews and scores. Sometimes a third reviewer also evaluates articles during this consensus score assignment process. So once the evidence is evaluated and organized and scored, the author goes to work drafting the guideline update using all of that literature. The drafting process takes several months and involves regular discussions with members of the guidelines advisory board and other members of the nursing practice team who are all guideline authors. So the guideline advisory board is another important element of the guidelines development process and they provide valuable insights and input into each guideline because they are an interdisciplinary group that can provide perspectives from each of their disciplines. As representatives on that guideline advisory board are AORN members uh, and association liaisons from professional organizations, including anesthesia, infection prevention, safety organizations, surgeon organizations, and also ISHM. So once the guideline draft is completed with the input from all of these professionals, the draft has been edited by two editors. And I'm the first one that goes through with the author in what we call a line-by-line edit, where we carefully consider how the wording of each recommendation can be interpreted to be very sure that what we want to communicate is what is on that page. Next, another editor evaluates the language further. Once all of that editing is done and the author is happy with the wording, the draft goes up for what we call public comment for a period of about 30 days. And this is where anyone anywhere in the world can review the draft and add their comments. 
After the commenting period is complete, the author and I go through each comment and decide how to address it. The insights that we gain into how the guideline is interpreted during the public comment period helps us to further refine the language. The draft then goes back for another round of editing before it is finally ready for approval by the guidelines advisory board. After that approval, no more changes are made to the draft and it's prepared for publication. First on our online subscription platform called eGuidelines Plus and then in the next year's print version of the guideline. So I often hear the phrase evidence-based practice and you've even mentioned it already today in our talk. But I hear this especially when we're referring to the guidelines. Can you explain the phrase evidence-based practice and why it's an important component of the guidelines? Of course. The reason that AORN guidelines are evidence-based is that the foundation for each recommendation is in the research literature. Clinicians and other professionals can find evidence-based recommendations in the AORN guidelines and then in turn use those recommendations to integrate into their practice and that's what creates evidence-based practice. When ARN decides to update a guideline or create a new guideline, you know, how do they do that? How do you decide when a guideline should be updated? That's a really great question. Researchers never stop researching, and new literature is published every day that can inform changes and updates to guidelines. So it's important that we are diligent about staying in tune with what the published literature is about each of the topics in our 34 guidelines. So knowing this, we have each guideline on a schedule for update every five years. And in addition to that, we have a defined process to respond to significant changes in the scientific literature. To do that, we regularly review research literature alerts to determine whether an update to the guideline is indicated by the newly published literature. Besides writing guidelines, which is an extensive process, as you just explained to us, what other things do you and the guideline authors do besides just writing guidelines? The guideline authors are very busy through the year. So in addition to this really uh, labor-intensive process of guideline development, the guideline authors also serve as experts on the topics for the guidelines that they have authored. They also write a column in the AORN journal called Clinical Issues, which addresses difficult practice questions that are not always detailed in the guidelines. In addition to all of that writing and presenting education, they also answer questions from AORN members on the AORN nurse consult line, which is a service that allows members to call us on the phone directly and have a discussion with the guideline authors about practice issues that they may be facing. They are quite busy. <laughs> yes, it really sounds like it. So in October of 2020, AORN released the guideline for care and cleaning of surgical instruments. Now, this was a revised guideline. One of the changes in this guideline deals with the heating, ventilation, and air conditioning, uh, more commonly known as the HVAC parameters. Now, I get this question a lot uh, from my sterile processing folks, and it's where can I find those HVAC parameters or can you tell me the HVAC parameters for my facility? Now, can you explain why the exact HVAC parameters are no longer in the guidelines 
and where our listeners can find these parameters? Yes. Now, now this can be very confusing to people. In fact, it's, it's confusing to, to most users in the clinical setting. And the requirements can be different based on when the facility was built or updated. The requirements for HVAC are detailed by the American Society for Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Engineers, or ASHRAE. So this is the reference that we use in the AORN guidelines, and it's also what the Facility Guidelines Institute, the Department of Health and Human Services, and the CDC use to determine HVAC requirements for spaces in the healthcare setting. We do provide a table in the guideline for design and maintenance of the surgical suite that describes the HVAC parameters from the 2017 version of the ASHRAE standard that includes minimum total air exchanges per hour, minimum total outdoor air exchanges, temperature, relative humidity, and pressure relationships to adjacent areas. But it's important to remember that 2017 version of ASHRAE may not be relevant to the facility if the facility has not been uh, renovated or updated or built since 2017, then all of those requirements would revert back to that previous version of the ASHRAE standard. So the new guideline also has some changes in verbiage. Can you talk about some of the most recognizable ones? Of course, there are a few verbiage changes in the guideline, and they're really important to understand. So we've made an attempt in this guideline to make things a lot more clear. And in other words, some of the terms that we used previously had definitions that weren't as clearly defined. So one example is medical-grade compressed air. We're no longer using that term, and we've converted every incidence of using that term to a new term, and that is instrument air. So medical-grade compressed air is not a term that's widely used in AMI standards, and we know that our users use both documents, the AMI standards and also AORN documents, to guide their practice. And we really wanted to better align with what users see in AMI documents and also have a great definition of instrument air so that they really know what they're using. So instrument air, defined, is a medical gas that falls under the general requirements for medical gases as defined by NFPA 99, Health Facilities Code, that is not respired or breathed, and is compliant with ANSI ISA 7.0.01, which is the quality standards for instrument air, and is filtered to 0.01 microns, free of liquids and hydrocarbon vapors, and dry to a dew point of negative 40 degrees Celsius. In addition, we made a point to recommend that instrument air be regulated for pressure because too much pressure in delicate instruments can cause damage and too little pressure may not effectively dry medical devices. Another term that we are aligning with and standardizing to is point of use treatment. Now, where the guideline formerly said cleaning after use, we're using point of use treatment instead. Cleaning after use is just one part of point of use treatment, which can involve disassembling the device, applying an enzymatic solution that prepares the device for further processing. It could include disposing of disposable components of a device. So cleaning after use really just was part of the picture, and we wanted to paint a, a clearer picture of the total process of point of use treatment. Another example is treated water versus critical water. So treated water is kind of a fuzzy term that's not really measurable. 
And uh, water quality and instrument processing is really important, often misunderstood and often overlooked. So the term treated water did not really provide enough information about what the quality of the water should be and didn't help healthcare organizations that wanted to verify the quality of water used in instrument processing. So if your water is treated, it's treated, but you don't really know what the quality is. But on the other hand, critical water has specific quality parameters that can be objectively measured. And it's important to note that critical water can be achieved through different treatment methods, <laughs> including deionization or reverse osmosis, as examples. One of the major changes to the guideline pertains to pre-purchase evaluation. Can you discuss some of those changes? Yes, I'd be delighted to. So something that's not new but worth noting is that as part of the pre-purchase evaluation, the very first step should be determining whether the device is FDA cleared. So that 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 pertains to both medical devices that are, you know, reusable medical devices such as surgical instruments, but also reprocessing equipment like washer disinfectors. So we, we also want an interdisciplinary team to develop a standardized process for evaluating and selecting those reusable medical devices and the equipment and supplies that will be used for reprocessing. Those interdisciplinary team members should include sterile processing personnel, perioperative nurses, surgeons, surgical technologists, infection preventionists, anesthesia personnel, biomedical engineering, facility engineering personnel, and other stakeholders which are determined by the healthcare organization. For example, some organizations may have an industrial hygienist that can assist in making these decisions. And the additions to this interdisciplinary team are really what's changed. And uh, we, we thought that it was very important to include the biomedical engineering personnel and facility engineering personnel and that industrial hygienist when available because they can provide really valuable insight into how integrating new equipment into the service can affect the entire system. Biomedical engineering personnel will be responsible for oversight of the maintenance of all of the equipment, and facility engineering personnel can provide valuable insights into the utilities and spaces needed uh, to integrate the new equipment into the process. And industrial hygienists can help evaluate those safety concerns around use of chemical disinfectants and cleaners that may require some changes in the way that those toxins are captured and managed and monitored to really be sure that personnel working in those areas are safe. Another addition to the guideline is in recommendation number two. This addition talks about the sinks and the decontamination area. Can you talk about the reason for this change? Yes. The, the previous version of the guideline didn't discuss in detail the number of sinks needed or the importance of ergonomic functionality of the sinks. In today's world where instrument complexity is increasing, it's really important to ensure that instrument processing personnel have what they need to follow the instructions for use for processing all of the equipment that passes through their department. So for this reason, we added a more explicit discussion of the sinks, including that there should be multiple sinks, which are designated for soaking, cleaning, intermediate rinse, and final rinse. It's also important to note that we made a statement that they should be large enough to accommodate all of the instruments and trays that will be passing through them, and that they're at ergonomically the correct height for each user, and that they're marked 
at the water level needed for cleaning solution measurement. So we all know that working at the sink in the decontamination area is one of the most exhausting jobs in the organization. And whatever we can do to make sure that sterile processing personnel have what they need when they need it at a comfortable height is really important because a, a comfortable worker is a worker that functions better, that functions longer, and makes fewer errors. Let's talk about water quality. In my opinion, water quality is probably one of the most overlooked items in sterile processing. Can you talk about the role water quality plays in recommendation number four? Oh, yes. (laughs) So poor water quality can have a lot of really negative consequences. And if you don't know that your water quality is poor, you might not know why you're having these issues. So some of the consequences of poor water quality Um, is that it can reduce the effectiveness of some disinfectants and cleaning chemicals by interacting with them to form insoluble precipitates, can create deposit buildup blockages in valves and filters in equipment. It can leave a white-gray residue on instruments after drying, and it can cause irreparable damage to instruments. For example, chloride is damaging to stainless steel and can cause pitting corrosion. Healthcare organizations are required to have a water management program. And many organizations do not include sterile processing in this overall water management program. And that really is a missed opportunity. So we do have a guideline that says in collaboration with clinical engineering personnel, facility engineering personnel and infection preventionists, the organization should establish a process and frequency for monitoring the quality of water used in decontamination processes as part of that organization's water management program. As part of this program, the guideline recommends that the quality of water be monitored to specific areas of the sterile processing environment, including what is supplied to decontamination equipment, the water that's held in holding tanks after the water is treated. And also, it's important to remember to evaluate water quality after maintenance or repairs to the water system. In addition to these, we have also learned recently through the pandemic that a shutdown can affect water quality when the water isn't used for a period of time. Now, we're learning more about what that period of time is and what should be done to ensure water quality before a startup again. There are also new recommendations for loaned instrumentation in the guidelines. Can you discuss some of the procedures that should be included when managing loan instrumentation? Managing loaned instruments really is a team sport. <laughs> so there are, there are so many people that come together and so many things that have to fall into place for loaned items to be requested, received, and processed in enough time for them to be used safely in patient care. So because of this, our recommendation now reads that an interdisciplinary team which are the same people that we talked about before, which are appointed by the healthcare organization, should establish standard operating procedures for managing those loaned reusable surgical instruments. And we have some specific elements that should be included in these standard operating procedures. And these are a process for requesting approval and communication for loaned items, uh, pre-procedure requirements for the lender of the items, including instrument or reusable medical device delivery timing, location, documentation, and communication, and also that the manufacturer's IFU is included with those loaned items. 
and shared responsibilities of the lender and the healthcare organization include putting together education for personnel before processing and use. Yes. In other words, if this is the first time that, that this team has ever seen this item, they shouldn't be figuring out how to process it and use it on the fly on the day that it's needed. That education should happen in advance. It also includes a method for obtaining processing accessories, which are not always found in the organization, um, that are required according to those manufacturers' IFUs that are always delivered now, hopefully, with those loaned items. Another shared responsibility are inventory requirements and a process for taking that inventory of the items when they arrive and before they leave. That shared responsibility includes a process for handling, decontaminating, inspecting, packaging, and sterilizing the items. Instrument set weight limits, which are important for uh, preventing injury to those personnel who will be handling them, and also there are weight limits for sterilization modalities. Those shared responsibilities also include a process for point-of-use treatment, a process for post-procedure decontamination, how to return the items to the lender, and documentation of these processes and transactions related to all of the loaned instruments. So in addition to that standard operating procedure, it's important that all loaned reusable surgical instruments be considered contaminated and deliver them directly to the decontamination area for decontamination, inspection, and packaging before sterilization and patient use. It's also important that loaned items arrive to the healthcare facility to allow time for inventorying and processing in accordance with the organization's standard operating procedures and the manufacturer's IFU without rushing. So last question, I see that the boroscope has been added as an inspection tool. Can you talk about why the boroscope can be such a valuable tool in sterile processing? Absolutely. The boroscope really allows us to see where we haven't been able to see before. And that can be kind of scary because what we're finding when using the boroscope is that there, there's bio burden lingering in places that we didn't expect it to linger. And if we don't know that it's there, we can't do anything about it. So adding that boroscope to your toolbox is like adding an extra set of eyes that can be really valuable in identifying places where where decontamination is not as effective as we once thought it was. Well, great. Aaron, thank you. You've given us uh, some great information that we can take back with us and apply in our facility. So this is a great guideline. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule and speaking with us today. Thank you, John, for this opportunity. And a huge thank you to everyone at ISHAM and all of the sterile processing professionals out there for all of the hard work that you do every single day to keep patients safe. We definitely couldn't do surgery without you. Thank you, Aaron, for speaking with us today and updating our listeners on the new guideline. You know, as you can see, there's lots of important recommendations in this guideline that can really apply to sterile processing. So if you don't have a copy of the AORN guidelines in your department, well, now it's time to make a friend with an operating room nurse or ask the OR manager to borrow it, maybe indefinitely. Isham Nation episode 32 is in the books. Thanks for listening to the show. 
To receive the CE for this episode, simply click on the link in the episode notes, fill out the required information, and select the code GUIDELINE. Again, the code for this episode is GUIDELINE. Remember, keep an ear out for the next episode always on the 1st and 15th of every month. Each episode's on demand, so when you're ready for us, we'll be there for you. As always, stay classy, Isham Nation, and we'll see you next time.